Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this episode, my co-host, Ganga Devi Braun, and I have a far-reaching and deep conversation with Daniel Christian Wall, one of the real rock stars in the regenerative design movement. Daniel brings a background in biology, ecology, sustainability, deep sustainability, and spirituality and weaves these together. I, I consider him a real Renaissance man. You're gonna enjoy this. Well, Daniel, what a delight to have you as part of this post-doom conversation series. Um, I'm subtitling it, Regenerative Conversations, Exploring Overshoot Grief, Grounding and Gratitude. And your work, uh, as well as uh, my co-host Ganga Devi's work, um, in regeneration is I think some of the most holy work that's happening on the planet. And um, I wanna mention that this is the first conversation that Ganga Devi and I will be co-hosting. Uh, we had a conversation ourselves on this theme about uh, three weeks ago and uh, um, just it was a delight and I occasionally have co-hosts and I was thrilled that she was uh, not just willing but wanting to co-host this one with you. So thank you for being part of this. Well, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to the conversation. Uh, anybody who's watching or listening to this, help us understand your passion, your you know, involvements. Give us a sense of who you are and what you bring to this conversation. I guess I see myself in a sort of dual identity of being a pilgrim and an apprentice um, and have been for maybe 20, 30 years now in trying to better understand life and my role in co-creating the world that we um, live in and emerge from and co-create. So in, in that journey, I've been um, a biologist, I've been a scuba diving instructor, I've done research on marine mammals, I um, did a master's in holistic science and a PhD in design for human and planetary health, worked with uh, Gaia Education and lived at the Findhorn Eco Village and also worked with the Global Eco Village Network on basically the, the community scale experiments in how to live being part of the solutions rather than part of the problem and how to um, experiment and, and investigate alternatives to the current, what I would call degenerative culture that is is the, the dominant model and the, the dominant narrative of separation and competition. And um, yeah, in, on that journey, I've had wonderful opportunities to work with Guy Education on writing curriculum and um, have investigated for about 15, 20 years before I really started sharing my writing. And in 2016, I published a book called Designing Regenerative Cultures that then moved me to go onto social media and actually share some of it because why write it if nobody knows it exists and um, and doesn't read it. So um, that's made me a lot more visible in the last few years, but really it's, it's a visibility of a pilgrimage and an apprenticeship that goes back at least 20, if not 30 years. And so that's yeah. one way of answering your question. And the other way is I see myself as a focal point of universe evolving, perceiving itself um, from within. Yeah. That's that's great. Uh, I'm curious, before I even ask about language, who have been some of the mentors or the people who have had the biggest influence on you 
um, and that you perhaps now consider, if they're still alive, close colleagues? Um, well, that's, you're going straight to the matter. I think what distinguishes me, and it's not a distinction that, that I have merit from, is that I've just been enormously lucky to have had a amazing group of mentors. Um, I mean, I've, I've, because I did this pilgrimage path and connected with places like Schumacher College or the Center for Alternative Technology in Wales or living at Findhorn and abroad pioneers to Europe, all these communities, as you well know, have amazing elders in them. And, and so through that journey, I've learned directly, like my second PhD supervisor was John Todd, who founded the New Alchemy Institute in 1969, talking about issues that are still absolutely current today. Um, if you read the principles of the New Alchemy Institute, that's what we need to do now, urgently, more urgently than some 40, 50 years ago. I think it was mainly Joanna Macy's and Fritjof Capra's writing that made me go to Schumacher College. And then through those connections, I actually connected with both of them and call them friends and mentors now. Um, so yeah, I would name them and David Orr and um, also Brian Goodwin and Stefan Harding at Schumacher College. Mm -hmm. And I've been like a, a lesser well-known, but really important person is a, is a guy called Professor Stephen Baxter, who um, actually set up the world's first masters in ecological design way back when. And I met him at Schumacher and he then enabled me to do a PhD at the University of Dundee with him as the first supervisor. What was interesting at the time was like I, my master's thesis at Schumacher College was already about exploring participation and how to create healthy holes in a complex dynamic system. And um, basically suggested that ecological design was the practice end of the holistic sciences we were studying at Schumacher College back in 2001, 2002. And Seton Baxter read that master's thesis and offered me to find a PhD scholarship for me at Dundee. And it was in a school of art and design. So I, I kind of made the, the full transdisciplinary journey from having studied biology and um, evolutionary science and, and, and ecology um, as my first degree, and then a master's in holistic science to ending up in an art school. And at the time, PhDs in design were completely new. So I could break every rule I could possibly want to break. <laughs> So my, my thesis was 350,000 words long, 750 pages. Um, today, you can hand that in. First applied to hand in a thesis of that size, and then shortly after applied for handing in early because I'd done so much work for my master's that was left over after editing the master's and in between that, that I basically did my PhD in two and a half years. And, um, and it's completely transdisciplinary. It, instead of... Yeah. Normal PhDs are um, T-shaped, they're not very broad, but then very much in depth in one little funnel of some little discipline. Mm -hmm. And at the very bottom of that T, you have the contribution to original knowledge, which you get your PhD awarded for. Mine was web-shaped or comb-shaped. It, it drilled into lots and lots of different disciplines, of course, not at the depth that a normal PhD would do, but the contribution to original knowledge was in weaving a new web of meaning between the different disciplines. So in, in many ways, I'm, 
I'm in the business of trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Most people in the regenerative world, doom doesn't necessarily, you know, ring true emotionally because that's not our experience because we understand decay and, uh, and a breakdown and, and things like that. But, um, you know, we've used post-doom as a, a way of speaking about this series. And I'm curious, uh, how does that, you know, what do you think of when you think of post-doom? And then how do you speak of our times? How do you speak of these deteriorating or contracting times um, and what's unfolding? I went onto the, the new website. It looks lovely. And um, I, I kind of liked the way that you define doom and then post-doom on it. Um, it immediately spoke at a deeper level to me. I'm sorry that I can't quite repeat it, but you could probably. Doom is the midpoint between denial and regeneration with or without mm -hmm. us. And post-doom is the space that opens up when we remember who we are, accept what is, an what is inevitable, and invest in what is pro-future and soul-nourishing. So that, that's actually not all Michael Dowd. I, I tried that out and got some feedback from it. So there's a larger collective intelligence, but thank you. I, I like that as well. No, it really, because that makes post-doom ring even stronger. And, and in terms of a, a meme to catch people's attention, I think it's a well-chosen meme at this point because somehow from years and years of just having conversation with the people who were in denial of climate change being an issue and things not being quite so bad, we, we seem to have gone from waking up to the severity of the crisis to a sort of um, giving up and crisis, fundamental cataclysm is inevitable. You might as well face it. If you don't face it, then you're in denial. So yeah, I, I think it's it's important because basically the news that are, is coming in, the scientific news, is not at all um, encouraging. And we, we are at that, as I've said before, we're at that point where um, if we just look at the scientific data and look at what's probable in a rational mind's, mind frame, then the conclusion we've had it and it's too late could be taken. But I think it's precisely that we need to frame, reframe the way we think of ourselves and expand our frames of meaning beyond, including but beyond that rational scientific mindset that we access the place where we can go beyond doom. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I mean, in, in, in your summary you, you said something uh, or like the the second part of it you mentioned the word future and, and for me that's one thing that i'd love to have a bit more of a conversation about um because it's i'm in increasingly beginning to question whether our understanding of present future and the relationship between it our understanding of time isn't one of the core issues that is in the kind of changing our way of seeing so we can change our way of being. If we still trapped in this linear cause and effect present to future frame, then of course we won't see what power we have in bringing forth a different world by being differently in the present. Yeah. The gift that Joanna Macy's work has, has kind of unlocked in so many of us. I know a lot of people participating in these conversations were very deeply informed by Joanna Macy's work. And for anyone listening, um, there's, a, there's a talk that she gave that's on YouTube called To Live in the Fullness of Time. And um, a lot of her books and her works really um, help 
us to contemplate time in new ways. And um, I find it to be such, such a foundational perspective, um, not just the, the, the talks that she gives, but the exercises that, um, that she brings forward in the work that reconnects and through her book, Coming Back to Life. I really believe that that, that new way of relating to time can, can radiate out in, in widening circles throughout humanity. That's something that I, I agree is one of the most important elements of the transition that we have to face. There's an exercise that I sometimes have used with audiences that is an attempt to help people think of time in a uh, right here, right now kind of way. And I'll, I'll you know, sort of get dramatic because that's what I do as a public speaker. You know, I, I, I said, you know, hold your hands like this. All right, yeah. Now, where, where did the universe begin 13.8 billion years ago? Right there, right between your hands. That's where it began. I mean, because, the, and then I described the kind of universe that we live in, omni, omnicentric, and that if you go back 13.8 billion years, it's all right here, right now. Um, and the future exists right here, right now, too. How we be in the future, what we think and do in the future, how we relate to uh, ourselves, to our world is all a matter of how the future will unfold. And so we participate in that. And so it's not past to our left and future to our right or past behind us and future forward or vice versa. It's all right here right now. And time and space can be related to in that kind of personal way. So it's, a, it's an attempt to help people think about time and think about pro-future is about how we live here now. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's the, the, one of my mentors, because you asked me about mentors earlier, is a, a man who's now in his 80s called Anthony Hodgson. And um, Tony was a young researcher at J.G. Bennett's, Bennett's lab um, for the comparative study for history, philosophy, and the sciences in the 1960s, which was a full-on research lab of, of looking at the global situation and the future of humanity, but quite informed by the thinking of Gurdjieff and, and, and other esoteric streams. And um, it's actually been enormously influential. People like uh, David Seaman and, and uh, Christopher Alexander were strongly influenced by it, and, and Henry Bortoft and this, the, the, the whole Goethean way, way of science that he wrote afterwards. He was one of the researchers there. And what, what Tony recently is doing is bringing a lot of Bennett's work into the 21st century and re reframing it, not, not in a kind of, we have to bring back Bennett, but, but like capturing the essence. And what, one of the phrases he uses is the future potential of the present moment. For me, that is a powerful organizing idea. Um, that, that it's all of us now somehow because ultimately we are fundamentally connected and bringing forth this world as part of this world. So if we see it differently, this has causal efficacy and, and it makes the future unfold. We, the, the only way to change the future is to repattern it in the present mm -hmm. and by, by how, how we live and how we think and how we perceive. And, and that's where this shift from doom to post-doom is so critical because we need to, um, like as we get away from ideas of time, we need to also get away from judging whether, whether something is only good or valuable if it lasts much, much longer. Like yes. let's just relax. Let's just 
see the beauty in the present that is still with us, the relationships, the fact that life is coming back to life in Johanna's words, <laughs> like we like everywhere we feel like as Paul Hawken called it, the planetary immune response to what's going on is, is bursting forth because this is life itself wanting to continue and to shift us into a different way of being with it as it yeah. life. And, and yeah, so, so, yeah. and that's where, where I take my, both my hope, but not hope in the kind of, we're going to make it. And in 2070, we'll be there and everything will be fine because we'll done all the drawdown tick list. Um, I'm not wanting to say, do we need to do all that too? But we need to do it in a different mindset, which isn't about carbon myopia and, and, and now kind of collapsing everything into we need a response to climate change and, and techie solutions, whether they are geotherapy or geoengineering. Um, both of them are quite techie solutions. Um, the, the main change for me to shift into post-doom is an inner change of how we perceive the world and how we basically move towards a reverential ecology or, or, or a, a, a cherishing what's right in front of us and seeing that abundance again. I feel that that sense is so present in your work and in your present. Um, you're very generous with your time and your emotional labor on in Facebook groups where people are grappling, grappling with a lot of these questions. Um, and I know that there are so many people right now who are maybe even drawn to this podcast because they're, they're in that doom space and haven't made that journey um, that you just so beautifully articulated. And so I'd love to dive more into your story. You've shared beautifully about your, your academic background and the different areas of expertise that you've drawn from, including all of your mentors. Um, but I'd love for you to share a little bit about your own personal um, journey from really like within your heart, like what were the experiences in your life that brought you into kind of the dark night of the soul into the the deep sense of hopelessness that so many people now are experiencing that that propelled you forward into who you are now and the work that you're doing now to decide where to start the answer of, <laughs> to, to a question like that um i mean to some because i've asked myself the same same thing many times and um one thing that comes to mind is that that i'm told by my parents that at some point around seven or eight years old I um, when we were on a holiday and people asked little boy where do you come from I, I just stopped saying well I'm Daniel and I'm from Germany or I'm from Munich um, I just started saying the G German word would be Terrakian or earthling um, like I'm I'm from planet earth I just never felt terribly identified with being German um, and always felt more part of um, this, this planetary community. And, and maybe growing up in Germany, in the Cold War, remembering conversations when I was maybe seven or eight with my brother who was four years older, um, around the time that the day after came out this, this anti, like the, this post-nuclear Holocaust film. And my father forbade us to go and see this film. He said, like, I'm going to disinherit you if you <laughs> go and see this film. This is not for you. But we, we had conversations at the time of saying, um, what, what do we do when, when the SS-20 are launched and en route to Munich? Um, because Munich is where the, the German Secret Service sits. Um, so we kind of knew that we had 
SS-20 and um, cruise missiles pointing at us and, and all the strategic plans of the Third World War in the Cold War were, basically had Germany as their battlefield. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of grew up with a conversation that was already quite doomy in, at the time. And then being a kind of early teenage activist against nuclear burn-in element recharging plans near, near, near Munich where I live and, and against nuclear weapons and, and campaigning for Greenpeace and, and Amnesty International when I was 15, 16. And, and I think I drew away from th- that sort of fight against something to try to understand life more through having an, a brilliant biology teacher. And, and that's what then put me onto this other journey of, of studying life and evolution and ecology and and um, being in love with marine mammals. And then there was another point of inflection where I had managed to won a, uh, win a scholarship from Edinburgh University to California to UCSC and um, was already doing what I was dreaming of. I was studying elephant seals at Nuevo State Park. I was um, out on a Boston whaler doing dolphin follows in Mont- Monterey Bay. And, and I kind of realized, wait a minute, these people aren't letting me talk about what I'm seeing. I, if, it's, if I can't put it into statistically significant boxes and put a p-value to it and, and, and chop reality into little boxes that I can analyze quantitatively, then, then I'm not allowed to talk about it because it's anthropomorphizing and all that kind of stuff. And that's when, when I lost my my impetus to really want to be a research scientist because it, I, I, I wanted to be a naturalist like Humboldt or Darwin. I didn't want to be um, one of those number crunchers. And at the, around about the same time, I got challenged by this social anthropologist, Adrian Zielman, a wonderful teacher who I was doing classes with, um, whether I really wanted to be a scientist. And so I started to really think about it. And, and I had this moment also out there with the dolphins where I asked myself, if I spend all my life researching this species, knowing that it most likely will go extinct, am I gonna turn into a Diane Fossey or a Jane Goodall? Am I gonna start being an activist and get myself killed because I'd be so angry about what people are doing to this one species, which is a righteous way of living and at the same time, maybe not very effective systemically, or could I could I go the path of Jane Goodall? Um, and at the time I was full of anger. <laughs> and, and so um, I decided, no, I'm, I'm, this isn't going to work. Like I'm, I would end up going the Diane Posse route. Um, and so that's when I decided to go back to working with my own species um, of, of like that. The only way that I could help the dolphins would actually be changing the dream of the North as the Pachamama Alliance was invited to do um, changing our story of relating um, to the world and listening again to, to ancient wisdom about how to live in right relationship. And yeah, so it's been, been a very long, long journey. So I'm curious, what were some of the um, spiritual or psychological or um, philosophical perspectives or practices that um, that supported you in making making that shift? Because there's one thing of saying, you know, okay, I'm going to decide to to go in this route to be to live in a way that helps to transform humanity and not just operating from reactivity. But it's 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 diff- it's a difficult journey, and I'm curious what. Um, 
what you began to cultivate at the beginning of that that journey that has you know of course now led to the cascading benefits of of who you are now well again it's it's so wonderful life like these these moments that seem kind of serendipitous and 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 not that important um, I, re I remember when i was about 11 or 12 i just wasn't the most sporty in terms of all those team sports you play in school like um basketball football and all that didn't really jive with me and somehow my school teacher at the benedictine monastery school i was going to at the time um asked would you like to you're good enough in school you don't need to do all the study hours in the afternoon if if i get you out of study for an hour and a half on a thursday would you like to join this special group of people who i'm doing yoga with and i'd never heard of yoga i was 11 or something um but then doing yoga with him i very quickly started reading the Tao de jin and 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 those kind of and and they that really put me on a path and and then kind of it wasn't high octane enough for me so i ended up doing traditional taekwondo from when i was about 12 onwards and and i think that 12 to 19 doing between 3 and 9 15 hours a week and sometimes going on training camps of doing 10 hours a day of traditional martial arts and getting to black belt in that time and 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 basically giving a embodied be, being given an embodied physical experience of two things a that to go from apprentice to master you have to do something for at least 10,000 hours it's a commitment it's it's not something that you just say oh i want to be a master in this so it takes a long time and you have to push and but also traditional martial arts you when you do these breakings and you punch a piece of wood and it, it um breaks there's something about mind over matter at that point like if if you doubt that you can break that piece of wood then it won't break and your hand will hurt a lot or your hand will break and and so experiencing these moments like silly things like i once i did a flying sidekick and as i was jumping off i stepped on a bee and, and the pain of being in mid sidekick but feeling the bee slowed down time and i had this amazing experience of something that was maybe 10 seconds or not even seven five seconds i don't know how eh, how long a flying jump kick lasts but <laughs> For me, it was minutes. It was like, oh, I got stung by a bee. Oh, I'm still flying. Like <laughs> during some breakings of wood, I, I had this lived experience of the possibility of what Hollywood movies try to make you see when they suddenly slow everybody down and they talk <laughs> like this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, so so I think that those things really changed my life early on in that way. And then very briefly, um, doing work that reconnects with Joanna and, and having the opportunity to really go deep with her over, over an 11 day teacher training in, in Spain at one point. And then meeting another wonderful teacher called Gigi Coyle, who is um, a co-founder of the Ojai Foundation and um, works closely with the School of Lost Borders and, and Vision Quest work, but is best known for having written the book, uh, The Way of Counsel with Jack Zimmerman. And, and that practice of the way of counsel, of, of moving beyond the wisdom of the small eye into the wisdom of the group and the wisdom of place through an ancient practice of, of sitting in circle and, and listening from the heart. 
yeah, those those things along with meditation and and yeah, they all contributed somehow. I'm reminded of. I believe it's a fact, I want to state it as a fact, that unless we have a change of worldview, a change of heart that is a heart-mind change that then ripples out in behavior, along the lines of what would be called in the West ecocentrism or life-centeredness rather than anthropocentrism or human-centeredness, then all of our attempts at techno fixes and using the market and all the other things that we will try to do to... Um, have things be less bad or to move into a healthier future will be counterproductive as long as we have the mindset that is classically Western at this point, but not only Western, industrial, that this idea that, you know, uh, that we own the land, you know, that, that rather than the land own us, owns us, that, that we, that, that humility that indigenous, indigenous cultures have and still where they exist model of that we belong to the land, not the land belongs to us. That sense of we measure progress and success in life-centered ways. How well is the soil doing decade by decade? How well are the forests doing decade by decade? How are the other species doing decade by decade? What's the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so when you use language as you used earlier of reverential ecology, I just want to, I just want to check that uh, because I think that's vitally, that's exactly it, bringing the best Robin Wall Kimmerer will be a part of the series and she's her book braiding sweetgrass is absolutely fabulous along bringing Western science and, and a careful empirical understanding, but this deep heartful relational, this, this I thou relationship to primary reality. So, so thank you for mentioning that. And one other thing I want to mention, which is you, I'm speaking to you from Humboldt, State University here in Humboldt County, uh, Eureka, California, Arcata, California. And my wife, Connie, who's a, very much a naturalist, she always says, in fact, she'll be delighted to have heard you say, um, that most of the great, I don't know about most of, some of the greatest scientists, Alexander von Humboldt, for example, uh, Charles Darwin, for example, were naturalists first and scientists second. And that, uh, that sense of, of, of holistic thinking uh, generative thinking, big picture thinking, life-centered thinking. I remember while I was at Schumacher College reading this small little book called um, Saving Ideology by a guy called Owen Barfield, who was a professor at um, Oxford. And, and he's very influential in the anthroposophical movement and, and, and kind of the, the Steiner schools and Montessori schools. And in this book, he speaks about a distinction between what he calls primal participation, which is the participatory worldview of indigenous people in the sense of, as I walk through the forest and uh, the sunlight hits the dewdrop and I see a sparkle, that's a communication that is meaningful and that I can um, be in relationship with because I'm part of all of this. Like it's, it's, a, it's a feeling that is, understanding our relatedness to everything and our coming out of that relatedness, the, the, all my relations. And, and then he speaks that there's the, the step into separation, which with the enlightenment kind of enabled us to also take a perspective that was first needed to then what we're doing now is to take the second order perspective on that perspective to begin to pay attention to how, how we're seeing um, 
in exploring the world and that this separation is just an illusion of a way of seeing. And, and he then speaks of this final participation where we put the two together. We're not swinging the pendulum back to a idealized ancient past of indigenous oneness with nature. We, we harvest the bits that actually are very informative about this journey of separation that have, has created so much degenerative side effects and, and move into final participation. And, and for me, that's where that shift around time and, and agency happens, where, where, we, where we begin to realize how we can, like Joanna Macy once said to me um, in a conversation, to, uh, very fitting, I think I mentioned this to you in an email, um, like, the, like very related to the post-doom conversation. Um, it was 2003, we were in the mountains of Madrid um, I was helping to facilitate an 11-day teacher training with her there. And we just walked in the landscape and, and somehow got in our conversation to that point where I said, is there still hope? Do you think we still, like, we're, we're not doing very well. Where, where's this going? Um, and, and Joanna, in her wonderful Dharma teacher way, just sort of stopped in her tracks and, and, and looked me in that. Like, she, she's one of these people where the only way I can say it is, is it, she and Gigi Coyle give me the feeling of being in the presence of the living universe embodied in a human being. Amen. Where, where the conversation sometimes isn't about what has been said, but there's a much deeper transfer of a kind of almost, you know, when the Buddhists do this boom, yeah, um, like a package comes across that unfolds like a present for years to come. And, and she looked at me in that way and, and she said, Daniel, it's not about whether we go out or whether we don't go out. It matters how we go out. I think what you just said about um, being in their presence, giving you that sense of being a part of the living universe, um, like that is, a, that is a beautiful element that is an experience that is possible among humans. Um, and I think often when we talk about human nature, uh, there's this like emphasis on just the the awful, the awful inevitable things that make humans degenerative participants in reality. Um, even I, when I was in like ninth grade in high school, um, my chorus director, who was uh, very much like had a, an inst instigation uh, kind of personality he wanted to always get us thinking he he asked everyone in the in the choir uh what do you think human nature is and everyone was like saying all of these awful things because in pop culture we say you know like oh that's just human nature to be um you know to be selfish to be aggressive to be to lie to cheat people um and i was such a I was such a fierce stand um, for the goodness of human nature at like 14 years old. I was so clear that, you know, no, what actually makes us distinctive is that we are capable of compassion and co-creation and beauty and recognition and um, awareness of the living world around us. And I, I think I spent like an hour uh, occupying our entire <laughs> rehearsal period um, really arguing uh, that against my, my choral director and all of my peers who disagreed with me. Um, and I think a lot of people who are in this, in this doom space, you know, just see, just see humanity is not, not worth 
saving, not worth existing uh, in the future. You know, the conversation about humanity um, existing as a cancer is something that I think happens in many of our minds as we awaken to the global predicament. Um, and some of us make our way to the other side of that, recognizing that, um, you know, cancer cells are, are human cells that are confused about what's best for them. <laughs> and um, that's the way I try to reframe that for other people. And, um, and just the fact that, that that kind of direct experience and that perspective that you just shared is, is possible among humans um, and can be cultivated among all of us is, I think, a huge testament to the possibilities of human nature. And I would just love to hear your reflections more on, on that because um, we have gotten to this place because of the behavior and, and certain elements of the nature of humanity, but it's not all of humanity, you know, indigenous people um, who have been living in harmony with the natural world, cultivating um, agroforestry, huge e ecosystems for a long time, aren't facing the issues that we're facing except by the imposition of industrial Western culture. Um, so there's a lot of questions there uh, mm -hmm. that, that pull together, you know, there's, there's issues with um, elements of like spiral dynamics perspectives. And, you know, there's, there's just so many questions about um, the evolution of humanity that, that we need to be asking ourselves as a species right now. And I'd love to hear your reflections more in that vein. So, so on, on the one side, there's, yes, we need to deeply reframe the story we tell about ourselves. And that makes me think of the, the story that I tell in, in Designing Regenerative Cultures of how the book really kind of got inspired um, in a conversation in 2006 in David Orr's personal study at Oberlin College when, when I visited him um, for a few days. And, and he had to rush off to meet Al Gore un, in an unscheduled meeting and, and we had to cut his, his time with me short. And so we quickly tried to squeeze in an interview that I, I recorded, and it's actually online as well on my YouTube channel, um, where we've had about 20 minutes and I'm jiggling the camera and it's, it's a terrible recording. But in that, I asked him about the role of spirituality and the sacred in the transition to a sustainable future, as I called it at the time. And David's answer just floored me because he basically said that, um, before we can find appropriate answers to the questions of how we might create a sustainable presence for human, presence for human beings on planet Earth, or what we might have to do to, to get there, we would need to ask ourselves a much more difficult question. And, and that question is about who are we? Where are we going? Where, where do we come from? Who are we obliged to? And it's the question, why are we worth sustaining? So if we know what it is about humanity that is somehow worth sustaining, then, then we reframe. And then if we find a good enough answer, then we will find different ways of answering the, um, the how and the what questions. And, and so that kind of set this, the seed along with him mentioning you should write the book that only you should write in, in, in that conversation. Um, and 10 years later, it, it led, led to designing regenerative cultures. And so on the one hand, I think we do need to have that deeper conversation about the reframe of that our species evolved through collaboration. 
like if you look at the the shift from hunter gatherer well even before that from from the early primate ancestors living in the savanna they they created their evolutionary um specialty through being collaborative um but and and all the way through if you if you look at the city you you can listen to the news and say there were three homicides in new york today eh? but if 20 million people live together and um, people he'll help each other across the street and, and follow, follow all sorts of um, rules of how to move in traffic and how to um, go to school and how to create a legal system. This is a symbiotic living organism that has gazillions of collaborative, yeah. positive interactions. And what we do is we focus on that tiny little bit of negativity that sits on the surface that is a sort of fine tuning or, or, or kind of collateral response to somebody having been hurt and every act of violence is a cry for help some, somewhere the system. Like, I'm not saying that there isn't competition and there isn't aggression in our species, but we're just focusing on it too much. It, like mm -hmm. I, I often like to use this, this um, image of saying, it's like standing in front of the ocean and being so mesmerized by the sound and the beauty of the waves when they crash against the rocks that we think the ocean is all about the waves and the waves are the competitive bit. But the ocean, all the way down to the Marianas trenches covering 71% of the earth's surface is a sea of symbiosis, of life living together. And that's kind of the, the, the lead to the other side of the paradox, which I think is that part of the reframe, who are we, is to remember folks like Gregory Bateson who reminded us to, to think the unit of survival is not the species, not the individual, it's the species and the individual and the environment. Life is first and foremost a planetary process. So part of reframing humanity is to stop thinking so much about humanity. Yeah. It's about understanding that we are life and life has never been separated. Life is that process that over 3.8 billion years has made this rock in one spiral arm of our galaxy more inhabitable than anything we know out there. And it's complete lunacy to be Jeff Bezoing and, 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 and um, Elon Musking our way to Mars and beyond. Um, we, we haven't managed to make that evolutionary jump, that rite of passage as a species from wanty teenagers or locusts of just pulling from Mother Earth eh, to being mature members of that community of life and giving back to our mother and healing the Earth. And if we were to jump off planet, seriously, we'd turn ourselves into the locusts of the known universe and we'd make the same mistakes again. We, we, ha we have to deal with mission spaceship Earth, living spaceship Earth first. And, um, and I think the big shift is to align with life and, and again, find in that the mystery of eternal life. Like that's also something I learned from Joanna, that, that everything the wisdom traditions talk about when they talk about moving in, like merging with the whole or, or, or being reborn, it, it is about the fact that 
as life, as Gaia, as a transforming process. We are immortal, no matter what. It, it doesn't matter our individual story and our species story. But then again, it does matter because everything we do shifts how the story unfolds. And it's time that we shift towards becoming healers. Yeah. Wow. Amen. So well said. It comes in the language. Look at the language. And, you know, when we use language that separates us from the, the divine living world as divine, simply by referring to primary reality, for example, everything that, you know, is required for us to exist as merely the environment or nature. Thomas Berry used to famously say that the environment is not our surroundings. It's our source our sustenance and our end. But by naming primary reality, something other than a divine name, but by naming that merely the environment or nature, the language itself deludes us into thinking that human nature is separate from it um, and that we can do with it what we want. Um, so thank you for sharing that. That was great. I think it comes get, gets again to, the, to that essence of in that first distinction, like the, remember that arc from primary participation to separation to secondary participation, it's, it's okay. We needed to make that first distinction in order to build that whole amazing history and write symphonies and, 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 and write books and love poems. And, but to understand that it is just I think Einstein called it an optical illusion of our consciousness, this idea that we are separate from mm -hmm. it. And, and it's in, in coming back to that agency of understanding that Thomas Berry saying life is not a collection of objects, it's a communion of subjects takes us in communion is much more active and, and kind of it's, it's in a similar way, Buckminster Fuller said that I seem to be a verb. I'm, I'm not a noun. Um, if we shift into paying attention to the relational agency, the activity, the like, or, or J.G. Bennett said, we have to stop thinking of, uh, of ourselves as beings that do and start thinking of ourselves as doings that be. Um, yes, language is where, where it all starts. It's the upstream meta design shift that reframes reality like the, the Santiago theory of cognition basically makes that act of distinction of world and self the process of life itself so we need to take perspective but we need to hold the paradox that that doesn't mean that we're separate from what we're looking at yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's where the universe story or epic of evolution or big green history, I always add green history to big history because without it, I found I've been involved in that movement for many years. Thomas Berry became my mentor in 1988. But this whole big history movement can still be very anthropocentric and very techno-utopian. So that's why it needs to be tempered in my, in my belief, in my experience with green history, environmental history, like the, the, the living world as an active agent in history. And so that sense of identity that I don't stop with my skin, that I am part of the body of life and the body of the universe and the body of great mystery um, and like nesting dolls, all of that is my larger self. And I'm curious, um, one of the questions I've been asking folks in this series is how has, or if the universe story or epic of evolution or what Connie and I call the great story, it's our main website is thegreatstory.org. How has this big picture 
uh, ecological evolutionary understanding informed you or, I mean, you've already touched on some of this, but how has that uh, nourished or informed you? Again, I, the first contact I think with it was um, at Schumacher College in 2000, 2001. Um, Stefan Harding does a wonderful, uh, not, not the whole universe story starting at um, the Big Bang or uh, but 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 starting with the story of life on on Earth, and he sort of walks from up on Dartmoor down to Dartmoor along the along the coast, and um, explains the the big guy in cycles. And at the same time, through walking over distance, you you kind of get an embodied sense of the time frame involved in this evolutionary journey. And I think it's a wonderful way of of re-enchanting the world with science like like um also i mean brian swims wonderful book together with thomas berry on the universe is a green dragon um I, I really loved when when i first read it yes and I, actually I've, i live here in in, in palma de mallorca not far from the beach and I, I had this project of creating a paseo cosmico a cosmic walk as a public um demonstration and education ob object along the seaside walk to, to get more people into this story. And, and I'm still holding the vision that one day it will materialize. It's, it's been a bit difficult getting through the bureaucratic hoops. But, um, but it is interesting because it is also like in, in this very recent, more and more kind of coming back to something that I sort of intuited in my very early writing in, in 2000, 2001, that it's all about our perception of time. I'm sometimes questioning, does this story, as enchanting and amazing as it is in bringing us back into connection with that, like the same way like that, I remember when, when, when Joanna told me, um, whenever you go on stage or, or you do anything, just remember that it's not just you talking, you talk with the authority of 3.8 billion years of evolution, it's life talking through you, to not over-identify with like it, it, it's living that paradox of being, having a self, having a body, um, being part of the human species, but all of those frameworks of identification are part of that larger whole that has gone on for a very long time and will continue to go on. And I think, yeah. So thank, thank you so much for that story. Cool. It keeps coming back to that that distinction of a communion of subjects uh, rather than a collection of objects. Um, and speaking from that place, connecting to people from that place, I, I struggle sometimes when I'm put on a stage and expected to speak to an audience. It feels like the this there's like a subject object dynamic there where like I I am the center of focus. I really prefer sitting in circles with people and having that that sense of communion. But um, this whole this whole conversation has really helped me to see the the beautiful potential um, of 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 approaching that that center point dynamic and and just speaking from that place and hopefully stimulating it and others as I feel um, something that that the three of us do when we do uh, step into those positions. It's really beautiful. Um, so the next question is actually my favorite thing to talk about in the world, which is death. Um, kind of it's a bummer to some people, but um, as someone who's been around a lot of death um, in my life, um, it's something that I, I think cannot be under discussed among humanity. And um, the question really is just 
about your understanding of death and decay and impermanence as a part of this larger story, this larger cycling. Um, I know that in my own work, uh, understanding the processes of, of entropy and decay, um, I think is really, really essential for cultivating regenerative consciousness. Um, and I would just love to hear how you think about death and decay and maybe some of the, um, the teaching tools that you, that you might employ to help people uh, become friends with this inevitable and, and beautiful and regenerative process of, of life itself. One thing that I'm really grateful about being German is that very early on through my mother's love for Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, I connected with the writings and the poems of, of Goethe. And um, very early in my life got to read Faust, which is one of his major uh, pieces. And in there, he speaks with the devil, Mephisto. Um, and in, in, like, I won't go into all the detail, but basically there are two deep insights in Goethe's work, uh, particularly Faust. One of them is that life and death, like you can only have life if there is death. And that like literally Goethe in one of his aphorisms in later life said that death is life's wonderful way to create plenty of life. Um, or ingenious way to create plenty of life. And the other bit in, in, in Faust is that like most people in America probably know it more as the Disney um, wizard's apprentice. It's the warning that if we don't find the right relationship to science and the power of science, the power of making that effective view of being separate from and therefore being able to manipulate and control that other world, which always leads up into some kind of technology and that that technology can become a runaway effect and you being in California, like um, the the belief that we're in this runaway tech situation where technology will just continue to do its thing and we can't do anything about it. Really, that's an ancient, ancient story that Faust is just working through. Like, um, it's much older and the Gollum in, in Judaism and, um, speaks about the same thing. It's the warning that we create an, a technology that then rather than we mastering it, it masters us. And um, so, so back to your question about death. For me, death is, is something that for a long time has just, every time I think about it, what it does, it increases the contrast on lived experience because you become more aware that now is a gift to be able to perceive, to be able to be in relationship. I, I remember at one point I, I thought I had testicular cancer and I was completely stressed out because I was in the middle of the, um, the Masters in Holistic Science. And for about five days between doing some tests and getting the results, I was very much confronted with this whole conversation of, of in, in a conversation of, could this already be it? I'm not that old, How, what a shame. I had all these other plans to do with my life. And, and I always 
remember the distinct moment where I was walking around my room barefoot and I stepped into a drawing pin. And the normal reaction would be to yell and maybe say something not so nice. Um, and I just stood there and I just thought, oh, pain. I can feel pain. That's and I, awesome. I was just so in love with the fact and so grateful for, wow, this is an intense sensation that I'm feeling, but I'm here to feel it. And so, yeah, for me, it's, it's this death is what cranks up the contrast on us being grateful for being alive right here, right now, and, and still having agency. Um, and at the same time, it also is the, the, the cycle of life, like the resilience theory, if you want to take it into that, like you need to have the periodic breakdown of structures that no longer serve in order to be composted and cycled through to give birth to something else and something new. My, my father uh, passed away last year and he was also German. Uh, he was a, a German mystic also from Munich. And um, it was really through, through his death process that a lot of um, my more, more latent um, unconscious ways of relating to death through, through many experiences with death and hospicing AIDS patients when I was a child and all of these things kind of were able to come out and be, be articulated um, in, in connection and communion with, with him uh, during his process of, of dying as well. And um, yeah, just more than ever through that experience, I, and, and bearing witness to the immense amount of death and destruction um, that is happening and that is going to be increasing in, in volume and, and trauma on our planet, um, holding, holding that paradox of not, not just bypassing it, from that place of like, well, this is how life cycles itself, um, holding, holding the grief and also, and also recognizing like this is inevitable. Um, I was reading something, some piece of classical literature the other day and um, somebody in it, you know, saying like, I don't want to die. And somebody was like, you're not going to die. And that's, that's so frequently people say, you're not going to die. It's going to be okay. And people were saying that to my father as he was dying. And it's always so bizarre to me because I'm like, of course we're going to die. Of course we are. That's like, that's, that's the deal. <laughs> like, like there, there's this um, interesting cognitive dissonance in our culture of, of complete denial of the fact that this is, that this is true. But again, it's like, it's not the question of, you know, w will we survive? But how, how do we do this? How do we die? How do we live meaningfully? The fact that we live in this strange time of transition um, where we have a dual role of being both hospice workers to a dying culture and midwives to a new culture. And that, that we actually have to pay attention to both of those roles. And I think that uh, I, I see that all around me. I see that in, in the way I'm asked to show up. Um, it's it's basically the belief that we we can rematter matter in consciousness, and I still hold possible that we can give birth to something post doom that is actually a vibrant regenerative human culture diversely expressed everywhere around the planet in the way that 
people in place adapt elegantly to the unique conditions of the ecosystems and the cultures of that place. So it's, it's not one regenerative cultures, it's many regenerative cultures. It's an expression of nature's diversity out of place through us as human beings. But that doesn't mean this culture isn't dying. So back to the dual role, it, it means like if the, the other image that, that is being used more and more again, which is wonderful, um, is this story of what happens when the caterpillar turns into the butterfly that um, there is a stage in between where, well, you've all heard the story of, of, of the early cells of the butterfly being attacked by the immune system of the caterpillar until they link up and form that network of imaginal discs that then bring forth the butterfly. But in that chrysalis moment, something completely has to give away something completely has to die and dissolve. And I think that that's part of any, any rite of passage has that moment in indigenous wisdom where you have to face death and dissolution of the old in order to be able to step forward into the new. And for me, this is what we're going through right now. And, and, um, I remember like one thing that I'm using a lot at the moment, I, I have to remember to always give credit to Nora Bateson for it when I, when I first heard it is Nora Bateson at a conference that I was at um, in June, R3O, the reporting 3.0 as it used to be called now, it's re regeneration, redesign and resilience, they've rebranded. Um, this R3O conference, Nora Bateson was giving a talk just after mine, we were in the same session and she, was a little bit critical about whether we'd gone deep enough over two days with wonderful speakers. And so she challenged everybody and said, like, look, when you talk about innovation and when we talk about this, this innovating the, the redesign of our presence on earth, I'm wondering whether this innovation isn't still caterpillars with wings. I think that is a message that we need to take into the heart of business and into the heart of the UN and government and all people who are still trying to tweak around the edges and talk about caterpillars with wings. But we need to actually go through this chrysalis mo movement of complete dissolution, of not knowing whether we're going to make it, of not knowing who we are anymore in order to have the potential to give birth to a real butterfly. I think a really important part of that metaphor is that um, often the, the caterpillar will, in the last um, phase of, before it goes into the chrysalis, it's eating a huge volume of its, of the substrate of its life, you know, of if, you know, we're talking about monarchs of, um, of the milkweed, you know, like often milkweed plants will be almost, look completely dead because uh, because they've been so intensely consumed. And um, sometimes it's, it's reaching that point of there's nothing left to eat that kind of triggers the, the process of the imaginal cells um, unfolding. And, and that is, you know, right, as humanity, we are consuming the substrate of our existence um, at rates that, that just 
just can't continue. It's, it's as simple as that. And um, yeah, the idea of, of all of our solutions coming from mining asteroids is definitely the image of um, caterpillars with, with wings <laughs> that comes to mind, which is just, you know, not, not doing the work of becoming a mature species in order to be um, worthy of, of being entrusted such such abilities um it's yeah deep deeply concerning and and again the fact that we're able to have the self-reflection and the awareness of um the the kind of uh, second order cybernetics of having conversations like this and knowing that other conversations like this are happening around the world in different languages among different people is a really really uh, encouraging element of being alive right now it really describes where we're at um of having kind of been gluttons of the system that we so dependent upon and, 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 and feed upon it. And, and, and now it's time to transform. Another mentor of mine, founder of Schumacher College, um, former Jane Monk, and, and he frames it as, as we've been tourists on planet Earth. We've been looking at everything and taking everything for our own experiential gratification and, and that we have to move from being tourists to being pilgrims and um, really step gently on earth and, and, and ask what is appropriate, what is right relationship. And, and that's, that's where we can learn so much from indigenous uh, cultures that, that have held that kind of relational wisdom um, for, for so long. What has opened up for you on the other side of the post-doom doorway? I mean, once we've moved through the stages of grief or the anguish or the whatever, um, uh, certainly most of us in this series have experienced what Paul Traferka calls finding the gift. And I'm curious, what's opened up for you on the other side of the post-doom doorway, especially given the fact that you're a father with a young child? Living in place with community and community, not just human community, but more than human community. And, and more attentively cherishing the abundance and the beauty and, and, and the potential that, that loving care, biophilic relationship to other, to not other, to same, to the rest of life, um, can, can unleash in, in our daily way of, of being. Um, I f certainly feel myself in a, in a, in a transition personally at the moment where I want to do much more of this kind of virtual international relating and advocacy um, and much less traveling physically because uh, and, and even working on the kind of big picture storytelling isn't with everything we do we have to be aware that everything is an interaction uh, everything is um, affects something and it's a choice. And um, if I choose to spend ages on a Zoom call, I'm not spending time with my daughter. I'm not spending time with my community. And, and so for me, through that door is a time where I'm much more present to what's right in front of me and a lot less virtual and a lot more embodied. And, and um, where I found the right relationship between the global conversation and connectedness, which is, I think is still going to be needed and is going to be helpful to move through these three, four decades of 
traumatic change that we're likely to experience as we hopefully find a new way of being that actually heals humanity and through that heals the planet. Um, I think we need to just come come home to place and, and, and my 2020 intention is absolutely coming home to this island where I live and, and to get my hands dirty in the ground again and um, pay attention to that. And then I think I will be building that future by repatterning the present much more in integrity with, with what my insights have brought me to over the last year, year and a half, that it's really not about um, getting too lost in, in kind of painting yet another more detailed vision of how to technologically create a regenerative culture. It's about living regenerate <laughs> every day, every moment, every second. And, and that's a lot less virtual and a lot more analog. If you could kind of are like distill uh, in all of the things that you're tracking, um, that, that kind of sense of like, what is, what is worth focusing on right now? What are the opportunities that we have? We all have a connection to Joanna, so um, um, she's being quoted rather a lot um, in this conversation. But, and I've, I've said this before, and some people have seen this, this talk I gave at Fintown last year in October, where I also end with this. Um, but I think that her, her wonderful um, translation of uh, Rainer Maria Rilke's poem, uh, Dear Darkening Ground, um, speaks very much to our time. And um, what he comes to at the end of that poem, um, give me just a little more time, give me just a little more time, so I may love the things until they're real and ripe and worthy of you. So I may love the things until they're real and ripe and worthy of you. That for me is, is really the, the great opportunity we have every second. And that is the repatterning. And that is the ancient wisdom that every wisdom tradition in the world and every faith group in the world ultimately in its mystical tradition comes to that it's all about love and it's not a hippie platitude it is actually the deep essential reality of how to be in relationship and and it's we're, we're going to get a lot more pushback against those kind of statements from people no no how can he we must we must tick the lists of the hundred drawdown things now, and that's the way to save things. And I'm not saying we don't need to tick those hundred drawdown strategies, but if we don't reconnect first through that window of love that makes us understand that we, everything we do to ourselves, we do to the ground of our beings and everything we do to the ground of our being we do to ourselves so the only way to self save ourselves is to stop taking ourselves so seriously and get on with loving life thank you for having this conversation with me for giving me an opportunity to be like we brought each other forth in this conversation. None, none of us could have had this conversation by themselves. And um, so it's wonderful that you've invited this, this amazing group of people to, to have this conversation. And in the spirit of the future potential of the 
present moment. What I would love to leave the kind of strategists and we need to do people with is that there is agency in these conversations. We've just changed the world. And you will continue to change the world with every other conversation you have. And the instant of anybody listening to these conversations in the future is changing the world. For more information about this project, go to postdo.com.